Good morning. It certainly is wonderful to be here with you this morning. Um, if you're visiting with us, we're certainly blessed by your presence here today and want to thank you for attending with us. We hope that our assemblies have been beneficial and edifying, that you're uplifted and encouraged, and I hope the things that I present to you this morning will be beneficial for you as well. We continue studying in the book of Romans, and we're up to Romans chapter 5. And Romans chapter 5 is important for various reasons. <laughs> we get an understanding of the justification that we have through Christ. We get this con contrast of sin and life because of Adam and because of Christ, and it really is the pinnacle of Paul's argument against the Old Testament law that he's been dealing with since about Romans chapter 3. When I was in high school, I was on the debate team, and there was a guy I debated with uh, that was on my team with me. His name was Arlo, and Arlo was vastly superior to debate than I was. And I remember one specific tournament that we went to that and I remember the topic being about the fact that uh, should the United States not necessarily impose its will upon other nations, but influence them in our culture and governmental system and all of those things. And the first debate I walked in was against a young lady, and she mopped the floor with me because she made it about a women's rights issue. And I was not prepared for this to be about a women's rights issue. I went to school with all boys, so everything that I had thought about had nothing to do with women's rights. And then she introduced this element in there that I was not prepared for. It was emotions. And I couldn't deal with them in my debate, and I, she just tore me up. And then I went on, and another round later, a girl from the same school, she mopped the floor with me again. And I saw Arlo in about halfway through the tournament, and I said, man, I'm getting torn up. And he, he told me, he said, stop dealing with the emotions. Just deal with the facts. That was the greatest advice I needed. I would go on to win a couple more rounds, but I wouldn't advance. Meanwhile, Arlo went all the way to the top. He's in the finals round, and we're watching him debate. And he does one of the greatest tactics that you can do in debate. This young lady presented her argument, and in that she presented a law that from the early 1970s had to do with women's rights in foreign lands. During cross-examination, in which you get to question your opponent, Arlo asked her one question. He said, can I have that piece of paper that you held up earlier? And she gave it to him. In his rebuttal, he held that piece of paper up and he said, the United States is doing everything that we need to do for women's rights in foreign lands already. We have a law on the books. And then he went on to go and show that if you have a stop sign, do you need another stop sign? Arlo won the debate right then and there. He'd actually win the tournament because of that. Now, I bring that up for a very specific reason. That's exactly what Paul has been doing. Paul started in Romans chapter 3, and he said, here's your Old Testament law that you've held up as evidence of your justification before God. But here's what it really does. It points towards Christ. And then he held up the prophets, and he said, you think they point to your justification, but it actually points towards Christ. Then he held up Psalms and showed how it pointed toward Christ. Then he held up David, and he showed how it pointed to Christ. And then he held up Abraham the father of their faith and everything that they were. And he said, and this is how it pointed towards Christ. See, he took their false doctrine and the evidence they thought was valid for their false doctrine and said, it actually points to Christ. And as we look in, continue looking in the book of Romans, we're in this section, our five S's of Romans Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. And we're going to wrap up Romans uh, 5 and 21 in salvation today. 
And we see our clock here, or our watch, or a clock. I don't know which one it is. I snagged this picture off the internet. But it is a bunch of gears that have a specific function, and that's to tell time. And if one of these gears are not operating properly, then there's going to be something wrong with the time. And our salvation is not any different. That we have all of these gears that function together for the specific purpose of salvation. And now the difference is that some of those gears are operated by the power of God and the power of Christ, and some of these gears are operated by yours and mine's power. But they all function together for a specific purpose, and that's our salvation. The challenge we have today in modern Christianity is that some of these gears are lifted out and left off with other gears saying that they're not relevant, they're not important, and they teach just one specific thing or maybe a couple of the gears. When you need all of those gears for our salvation. In Romans chapter 4, Paul had been discussing the great and bold faith of Abraham. Abraham was justified by his faith. He was not justified by the works of circumcision and that he was justified before the Old Testament law was ever even in existence. How his faith was this great example of faith for you and I today, that when faith, he was given the promises by God, that his faith didn't weaken. When God told him that he would have a child whenever he was old, he was strengthened in his faith because he was convinced of what God was able to do. Paul is going to make this promise more real to you and I. Let me get my... This is the reason I got these, so I can see that back wall. Now, it was written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. He's talking about Abraham. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him, that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Paul is saying that we are able to be counted righteous because of Jesus who was delivered for our trespasses and, for our, and raised for our justification. A couple things I want us to notice here. That word trespasses means false step. That Jesus was delivered to death because of our missteps. Secondly, the promises made to Abraham have now become a reality because of Jesus. The promises that were made to Abraham aren't a reality now because of the Old Testament law or the prophecies. Those all pointed to Jesus. They are now a reality because of Jesus. And that's very important that we understand that and that they needed to understand that the justification of the world has been accomplished in the faithful life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 1 of chapter 5 to say, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have access by faith into His grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Of God, And the first thing we notice, as he says here in, in verse 1, is that we have justified, been justified and have peace with God. And ultimately, that's the goal. Now, we can't forget what he said in the beginning of all of this in Romans chapter 1 when he revealed that God's wrath is against all godliness. And that's the two things that are point, uh, uh, pitted against each other here, is God's wrath against ungodliness and the fact that we now have peace because of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we've obtained access into His grace in which we now stand. That not only have we not been declared guilty, or that we've been declared not guilty, I guess both ways works, 
But now we stand and God has drawn us closer to him. And I love the picture that's painted here by Paul. He doesn't depict us as crawling into God's grace. He depicts us as standing firm in God's grace. Not because of anything that we do and not anything that, uh, anything that we've accomplished, but because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Not only do we have these great things such as God's grace and we have peace, but there is more than that that we have to celebrate. Further, we celebrate in sufferings. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has, given, has been given to us. This seems a bit odd and out of place. He's telling us the fact that we need to glory in the fact that we have the grace of God, that He's drawn us closer to Him through Jesus Christ. And then he pivots and says... You also need to rejoice in your sufferings. You have this peace, but now you need to rejoice in sufferings. And Paul uses a chain of reasoning to explain this, that suffering produces endurance. Suffering helps us become stronger to be able to conquer the difficulties in life. It produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Much like metal being tried over and over again shows us how strength, how strong it is or what type of metal it is. It's not one and done. It's a process. And that produces endurance and that produces character for us. And finally, it produces hope. And that's the evidence of the change in our life is the hope that we have in God no matter what comes our way in this life. That's what speaks to His glory and what he has done for us. The reality is, is we don't like suffering. Is there anybody that really likes suffering? I guess there, I guess there, there probably is, but most people don't like suffering. And the suffering today, honestly, is really light in comparison to the suffering that they went through back then. You know, they had persecution coming from all angles of their life, from the government, from their community. We don't have that persecution. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want to make generalizations. I know that there are people that suffer every day. There are people that have ailments that it is just difficult to get out of bed. I'll be completely honest. But our suffering is light in comparison of what it was as far as our spiritual life is concerned back then. And how many times is our suffering as a result of our own decisions and our own reactions? Are we to respond any differently? If you make a bad choice and you're suffering through that, should you rejoice? Or should you only rejoice when suffering comes from external forces? That's not at all what Paul says. We rejoice in suffering no matter what. I mean, look at my wife. She married me 25 years ago. She suffered for 25 years, and she's happy. In all seriousness, know that this suffering provides a hope, and endurance provides a hope that other people can look at a life that says that we are rejoicing because of what we have, not in this life, but in the next life. He says there, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What does this mean? Unfortunately, anytime the word Holy Spirit is brought up in 
Western Christianity, it, it all of a sudden becomes about this emotional feel-good thing. And that's not at all what Paul is trying, trying to teach us here. He's trying to teach us what the Holy Spirit reveals to us, and he reveals it in the very next verse. He says there, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The literal rendering of that word weak is without strength. The Apostle Paul is not talking about physical strength. He's talking about spiritual things. And at the perfect appointed time, Jesus paid the right price. That he paid for our suffer, for our sins, and gave us justification through his death on the cross. And I want us to notice that he says at the right time. That's very important, important because Paul has established over and over again throughout his argument against the Old Testament law was that this was God's plan all along. That God didn't see, go, well, the Israelites messed up. Well, I'm going to have to do something different, so i got to offer Christ. This was all a part of God's plan from the foundations of the earth, from the very beginning. And we needed to under, they need to understand that, and we need to understand that. And I would like to highlight a couple of things that we observe about descriptions about our state. Number one, that we are weak and that we're helpless and that we are without strength. Number two, that we are ungodly that we are not good and we are not righteous. And when I say we are not good, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of people in this world that do good things from a worldly perspective. That's not at all what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that we are not good spiritually. Isaiah said that all of our righteousnesses is as filthy rags whenever we try to put it on ourselves. Our righteousness is worthless before God, that we are inherently not good before God, And that's what Paul is driving home for us. We are not someone worth dying for in this condition whenever you think about it. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. He did more, much more than what most people are willing to do. If you knew at the end of this month, that down in South Texas they were going to execute somebody for crimes in which they were guilty of. Would you go offer yourself for a stranger on the execution table for crimes in which they were guilty of? You know, it's not much to ask for me to offer my life for my wife or my children. I would do that. But if you ask me to offer myself for someone who is guilty of their crimes and a stranger, I'm going to have to say no. But that's exactly what Christ did. We are guilty of our trespasses. We are guilty of our iniquity. We are guilty of our sins. We are ungodly, weak, and unrighteous. And Christ said, I'm going to offer myself as a man and submit myself to the cross. Why is he doing this? Well, Paul goes on to say because he's proving his demonstration or proving his love for us, that God is demonstrating his love for us. There's no greater way that you can demonstrate your love for somebody than putting your life on the line and sacrificing yourself. Flowers doesn't say that I love you greater. Giving of gifts doesn't say that I love you and it's greater than offering offering your life. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. All this means that we can be justified because of Jesus Christ. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And you noticed earlier that that's what I titled this lesson is much more. There's a lot of much more in Romans chapter 5. Jesus died much more or even more we're going to be saved from God's wrath. And I want us to notice this point of progression that Paul is making from lesser to greater. In verse 6, he says that we are weak and ungodly. In verse 7, he says that we are righteous and that we are not good. In verse 8, he says that we're all sinners. Now in verse 10, he says that we are enemies of God. And this is a very strong word. That we were enemies of God. That's a problem that had to be dealt with. And the only way it could be dealt with is through the blood of Christ. And notice that we have another much more or even more. What this is intended to to do for us is give us confidence. It's to give us hope and the realization of God's love. It also establishes some things for us. See, the book of Romans 3 through about 11 deals with the law and God's sovereignty and salvation and all of those things. And then Romans chapter 12 to the end of the book is what you would call a lot of application teachings. And you get to the passages like Romans chapter 12 and verse 20 where Paul admonishes us, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If your enemy's thirsty, give them drink. You know, Paul can say that and confidently say that because he's established this principle all the way back in Romans chapter 5 where he says, you were God's enemy. And he produced a, solved a problem for you by offering up Jesus Christ to sacrifice for your sins so that you would no longer be an enemy. If God will do that, even more, we have reconciliation because of what he did. Look at what he did for us while we were still his enemy. Jesus died for the weak. He died for the ungodly. He died for the unrighteous. He died for the sinners. And he died for the enemies of God. We have another much more phrased differently and more than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're not celebrating ourselves. We're not celebrating anything that we've done. What we're celebrating is what God has done for us through Jesus. That rejoicing, you will see, should be the mark of a Christian life. Trevor talked about that a little bit last week. But three times now, Paul has told us to rejoice. And three times, it's been about different things. That should be the mark of a Christian. Unfortunately, we're oftentimes painted as constantly in this state of bemoanment or suffering or anguish or whatever the case is. And that's not what he's saying at all. We should be one that, a person that's constantly rejoicing so that when others look at us, they understand our rejoice. They understand what our hope is placed in. Because it's not the here and now. It's on the other side. It's on the other side of death. But that's the struggle we have many times in this wonderful nation that we live in. It's hard for us to see how much better can it be when we've got it really, really good. How much better it can be 
when we have all these wonderful blessings in life. So that whenever the smallest of things throws off our day, we're automatically in the state of not rejoicing or suffering. And the smallest things seem to impact us. When Paul was talking to people that were constantly under the pain of persecution, and he was saying, rejoice in all aspects of your life, even to the point of death. Now, verse 12 begins with the word, therefore. Paul is connecting back to his previous thoughts about reconciliation. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, the first question I have is, is Paul talking about physical death or spiritual death? Now, if you remember what happened in, all the way back in Genesis when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were given two commandments to tend to the garden and to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They failed in that, they ate of that tree, and sin entered in the world. Now, death did enter in the world, but is that what Paul is talking about, physical death? And it's important that we establish the answer to that question because in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7, there are some things that come up about whether or not it's physical or spiritual death that we need to understand. So, so far, Paul has not been discussing death, physical death so far in this letter. Up to this point, he's not been discussing physical death. He's been talking about reconciliation in the immediate context, that reconciliation being with God. And then lastly, when he's talking about Jesus being, bringing life, is he, ta- is he bringing physical life or spiritual life? The answer is that he's bringing spiritual life. So Paul is talking about spiritual death in this passage. I want to read a quote to you from a man by the, by the name of John Piper. Death, both physical and spiritual, is a result of sin. Thus, death only comes upon those who have sinned. Since infants die, they therefore must be sinners. It could be objected that Christ was sinless, and yet he died. But he willingly gave up his life, and he did it to conquer the curse of death that we are under. John Piper is a man that's written many books. He has a website called Desiring God, and this is one of the most ignorant statements I believe that I've ever read. I'm going to be completely honest. But you know it's prevalent in modern Christianity today. It's the thought of original sin, that we have the guilt of sin, of Adam's sin on us, the moment we enter into this world. Now, John Piper didn't come up with this. This actually came from the Catholic Church many, many years ago by a man by the name of St. Augustine. And it created some doctrinal problems because if we have the original sin of Adam's on our, Adam on our head, That's why you see things like infant baptism, but creates other problems because wouldn't that mean that Jesus was born with the sin of Adam on his head? So they created this thing called the Immaculate Conception in which when Mary herself was in the womb, God did some magic on her and she came out sinless, so therefore Christ was sinless. And I, I need to tell you that whenever you have to step outside the scriptures and concoct stories to back up your doctrine, There's a big problem. Furthermore than that, St. Augustine had a pupil. His name was John Calvin. John Calvin would break away from the Catholic Church 
He would start a reformation, but one of the things he took with him was called original sin. Or in his tulip doctrine, the letter T standing for total depravity, is one of the points of that. Now, you may look at that and go, well, you know, from Catholic perspective and a Calvinist perspective, that's the way they look at it, but, you know, a lot of people don't. The truth is, is John Piper is not a Calvinist. And a lot of Western Christianity has taken points of Calvinism and implemented it into their doctrine. One of the greatest points being that of original sin, that you and I are born with the guilt of Adam's sin on us. Now, we need to understand that's not at all what Paul is talking about here. And to get to that point, to get to the point in which you're saying we're all born with Adam's sin, you have to add two words to this passage. And so death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. That's where you get to the point of saying that we all have the sin of Adam by adding those two words. But those two words were not in the context. They're not in the verse, and that's not what Paul said. Secondly, if our condemnation is not based upon our sins, how can we call God a just God? That's the reality of it. How can I call a God a just God if the moment I entered this world, I am condemned through no actions of my own? Fourthly, or thirdly, it's like the, the illustration of the story of the frog and the scorpion. If you've ever heard this story, the story goes like this. There's a scorpion sitting beside a river. The river's rising, and he goes to talk to the frog, and he says, hey, can you give me a ride across the river? The frog looks at the scorpion and goes, what? Why would I give you a ride across the river? You're going to kill me. And the scorpion says, I'm not going to kill you. I need a ride. Why would I kill the thing that's going to give me a ride across the river? And the frog finally says, fine, I'll give you a ride across the river. They get halfway across the river and the scorpion begins stinging the frog. The frog looks at the scorpion and goes, we're both going to die. Why would you do this? And the scorpion says, because I'm a scorpion. That's what I do. It's in my nature. I'm a scorpion. And there's a difference between guilt and a difference between nature that we need to understand. When Adam sinned, he opened up the floodgates for sin being in the world. But we are like Adam in the sense that we have the ability to make choices. We have the ability to make decisions, and we're ultimately going to do that, and we're going to outstep outside of God's will and go against his holiness. That doesn't mean that we have the guilt of Adam on our heads the moment we enter into this world. If you wanted to take that analogy with a scorpion and frog even further, that all scorpions after that scorpion were actually responsible for the death of that frog is what that teaches. And that's not true. But the crux of it is this. If we did nothing to receive the sin of Adam, then we don't have to do anything to receive the grace of God. And that's why this is so appealing. And that's why this is a doctrine that has flooded and permeated all Western Christianity today because it removes accountability. If I don't have to be accountable for my sins, then I don't have to worry about anything and I can conduct my life in the way I want because I've got the sin of Adam, so therefore I'm going to have the grace of God. And it removes all accountability. And what a nice thought that I can do whatever I want and live whatever way I want, and I'm still okay 
with God because what does it really matter because I've already got the sin of Adam on my head. We are spiritually separated from God because of our own sin. We are under condemnation. We are enemies of God because of our own sin and the choices that we make personally. In verse 13, he says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And this is these verses, as you go further, they kind of, upon reading, just quickly reading over them, they kind of get a bit confusing. And this is where you can see why doctrinal things have been lifted out of here because of some of the confusion. But it's really much more simple than what we try to make it to be. He goes on and he says, he's pointing out that there was sin in the world before the law of Moses. Remember, we're dealing, he's ultimately dealing with the Old Testament law and the law of Moses with this. He's already pointed out that Abraham was justified before the law of Moses ever even existed. And now he points out again, he says, guess what? There was even sin in the world before the law of Moses ever existed. Paul taught earlier that where there is no law, there cannot be transgression. He said that in Romans chapter 4 and verse 15. And the transgression of Adam, he says here, is is not like the sin of others. Why? Well, first and foremost... It's not like the sin of others because he had two laws. Tend tend to the garden and not to eat of the tree of knowledge and good and and evil. Those were the two things that Adam was responsible for as far as being obedient to God. You go on to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and God gave them specific instruction, but it was unlike anything that Adam had done. And then you get to Moses where God introduced the Old Testament law or the Mosaic law, and he gives him 623 commandments. It was different. They weren't sinning the same. The second but most important point to that is this. Adam's sin had an effect on all humanity. And Paul is transitioning here to make a point about one man. Adam's sin had a completely different effect than the sin that you and I commit because his affected all humanity. It opened up the floodgates for sin to enter into the world. This is how Adam is a type. It says who was a type, the, a type of the one who was to come, talking about Jesus, that he was a type by one man. These two men had an impact on the world. Both the actions of Adam and Jesus had had an effect on humanity. Now, their actions were different and their effect was different, but they both singularly, I guess both of them, that's not singular, but at different times, may had an impact on the world that would affect all mankind. The free gift of Jesus is not like the, trans, the trespass of Adam. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if any man died through one man's trespasses, trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And you see this constant contrast 
back and forth between Adam and Christ. Jesus' effect on humanity was grace. Paul cannot be saying that because we are lost because of Adam's sin, because the answer then would be that we're saved simply because of Jesus' grace. So what is the parallel here? The parallel is that Adam's transgression introduced sin and death into the world, and Paul is trying to impress upon us the importance and understanding of the undeserved nature of Christ's work. Paul is emphasizing the one man versus the many. Instead of saying Adam or Jesus, he's repeatedly saying the one man, by one man, death entered the world, by one man, grace entered the world. One man affected many, and notice that it is through this one man that he talks about being Christ that grace flows. And he continues to establish why his work was greater than that of Adam. For because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led, notice the word led, to condemnation for all, for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience or by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And Paul begins with this condition that if death reigned through one man. Now what we would expect Paul to say is that death or separation from God reigned, but now life or reconciliation reigns, but Paul chooses not to do that. He doesn't make that contrast. Instead, he introduces this phrase once again, much more or even more will receive the, the reconciliation. Since one condition exists because of Adam, how much greater or better the condition is it exists because of Jesus Christ? And what he's trying to get at when in Adam death, or excuse me, in Adam death reigned, speaking spiritually, and he wants us to understand that there is this greater, better condition, all because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that we are not reigning in death, that we are now reigning in life spiritually because of Jesus Christ. Eternal life, that we are no longer separated from God's love. I want us to notice this personification of sin that he establishes here. When he's talking about sin, he doesn't speak of sin as an act. He speaks of sin as reigning in our lives. As if it's on a throne and has control over us. And he establishes this that we really need to understand because as we move into Romans chapter 6, he really talks about the fact of, uh, about us not let having sin have rule over our lives. Because that's exactly what sin does whenever sin is reigning in our lives, that we are subject to death and spiritual death and separation for God. That we either allow sin to reign or we allow grace to reign over us. And all of this back and forth that we see in the book of Romans or in Romans chapter 5 really is simplified in this chart for us by one man. We have these things that enter in the world. By the one man's sin into the world under Adam, 
By one man, Jesus Christ, we have victory over sin. By one man, we have death because of sin. By one man, we have life because of grace. As a result of Adam's sin, we have condemnation. But as a result of Christ submitting himself to death on the cross, we have justification. We have disobedience and suffering because of the sin of Adam entering into the world. But we also have righteousness because of Christ's obedience and willingness to submit himself on the cross. Through Adam, we have sin reigning in death. Through Christ, we have grace reigning in eternal life. Now, Paul returns to the nature and the impact of the law of Moses, because remember, that's what, we're, what he's been dealing with all this time has been the law of Moses. And he's established Christ as the Savior and what justifies us and he now goes back to the law of Moses, and he brings some, some thoughts about that. And remember, the Jews believed that relying on the law of Moses or their possession of the law of Moses was their ticket to justification. All the way back in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul said, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In Romans 4 and verse 15, Paul reminded us, reminds the audience that the law brought life and not death. Here in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, he reminds us of something else. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life with our Lord Jesus Christ. There was... No hope in the Old Testament law. That was the biggest problem. That there was ultimately not a complete remedy for our sins. And that was all part of God's plan, that you couldn't establish your hope and your justification in something that didn't provide a remedy for our sins. Now, what Paul is not saying is that God gave the Old Testament law so the intent would be that we would sin more. That wasn't the intent. But he's talking about just the nature of laws being in place. You're going to sin more. Go back to this illustration of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve had two, two commandments to keep in the garden versus 623 commandments in the Old Testament law, you have more opportunity to sin, right? Because that was the intent of the law was to point out our sin, to show us that we are sinful and weak and that we sin in all points of our lives. That's what God was wanting them to see. Not to establish their justification. Where law abounds more, sin abounds more. But I want you to notice the picture in verse 20. Where sin abounded more, Grace overflowed more. For all the points and opportunities in those 623 laws that they had to sin, grace overflowed even more. I know what Paul is saying here is, I know your hope was built in a law, and I've absolutely destroyed all of that hope but I want you to put your hope in this grace of Jesus Christ and the grace of God because it overflows and abounds even more than sin that could abound from the law. Previously, sin reigned in death, but in Jesus, grace reigns. 
Sin reigned in death by leading people to death or separation from God, but grace now reigns by leading people to eternal life or reconciliation with God. As we close this morning, I want us to read the first chapter, first verse of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? As Paul is in Romans chapter 5 and introduces and uh, begins Romans chapter 6, he asks a very important question, and it all has to do with all of this that he's dealt with in Romans chapter 5. Should we sin more? Now that grace is here, so that grace is even more in our lives? And we'll look at those questions that he asks next time as we continue reading in Romans chapter 6. But I leave you with that question. What about your sin? Shall you continue in sin? Shall you continue in the way that you've always done things? Will you continue being an enemy of God? Or will you come to the everlasting grace that has been offered by God through the blood of Jesus Christ? That's the most important question that you'll have to answer in your life. What is your answer? If you've answered that question and you look at things in Romans where he talks about rejoicing and reconciliation and rejoicing and suffering and rejoicing and hope and you find yourself that you're constantly in a state of pityness and you're not happy, why? We have hope. We have eternal life and we have reconciliation on the other side of this world. This world's but a vapor Our lives are here and gone. It's the eternal perspective that we need to have. This morning, if you haven't answered that question, I hope that you will answer the question about your sin and whether or not you're going to come to Christ. We can help you with that this morning. In Romans chapter 6, Paul asked that question, but he also talks about them knowing not that they were baptized. And he emulates the fact that we are baptized and Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Have you done that? This morning, you may be in a situation where you aren't happy. Maybe your hope is suffering. Maybe your confidence is a little down. We can help with that also. We can offer up sins on your behalf. We can help strengthen you. We can pat you on the back. We can give you a hug. Knowing that we are in this to grow together, and be stronger and strengthen one another. If you would find yourself in either of those groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.